talked a little bit about schooling in um, in Jordan, and a lot of the work I'm doing with schools around the world is how to make schools a more trans-inclusive place, um, with the view that if they are trans-inclusive, they are also inclusive in general, and that everybody wins. You know, I'm wondering if we can just talk uh, a little bit about your own schooling um, during those years. Is that okay? Yeah. What was school specifically like for you when uh, you'd begun to question your gender? So I suppose that's Thailand to some extent. Um, how did schools support or or undermine uh, your gender identity um, um, in those well, early years? In Thailand, I didn't take school seriously because I didn't really care. Um, and I think part of it was just kind of not really caring too much about academics. Part of it was because I had a very overachiever older sibling who I got compared to by teachers, so I thought I won't even bother then, um, which is also another damaging thing which doesn't have to do with trans stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of it was just like, um, I I didn't feel like some of my teachers respected my community, so I thought, well, I don't need to respect their assignments then, do I? Because there was, I remember there was one class, I'm not going to name the teacher who this was, but there was one class where the assignment was about um, utopias and we had to like design our own utopias. And one kid in the class, who I also won't name, because um, apparently he's changed a lot since then, <laughs> said that in his utopia all gay people would be killed and the teacher didn't do anything about it, didn't question him, didn't challenge him. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, wow, if this is the kind of attitude towards gay people, what could the attitude towards trans people be like, you know? Um, and so I didn't feel... Yeah, I didn't really care about school in Thailand. I was just kind of trying to get by. And part of that was also Jack being Jack, I guess. Well, the thing is... Yeah. <laughs> but then I kind of... I really turned that around when we moved to Jordan. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think because in... Because in Thailand I did... Even though, like, there was a lot of complications with, like, my identity and not having told people and hiding a big part of myself, I did have a lot of friends. You know, I did have a big social life there. Would you say you were happy there? No. But I had a lot of people who I talked to in a sociable way. Right. It's hard to be happy when you're hiding something really important. But, um, yeah, in... um in Jordan because like it was in I was the new kid but I was also the queer kid and the trans kid even though that wasn't like open information mm-hmm. um I didn't have friends I, I made a couple um made one really close friend but other than that I didn't really have I didn't have friends who I hung out with often I didn't have a social life I didn't have a passion at the time I didn't have much to focus on I was really struggling mentally and all of that but I put a lot of one way I coached that especially in my first couple years there um first year there to be honest I put a lot of time into academics I worked really hard a lot of that was self-teaching uh, yeah most it? most of it was self-teaching like in um in Thailand I got I didn't I never got bad grades except in Chinese <laughs> um I never got like I never got anything below like a B and I got a lot of A's and A stars still, especially in English, because I was just kind of, I was good at writing without having to really put effort into it. With maths, I kind of, I did understand stuff. I didn't revise, so I didn't get like, I usually got B's and the occasional C, but I never got, I never failed anything, you know? Um, so 
I was like an all right, decent student. But mm-hmm. in Jordan, when I actually started to put effort in, I realized, especially with maths, like, oh, I'm really good at this and I really enjoy it, you know? And I tried really hard there. Um, but it wasn't out of like inspirational teachers or like fun classes or anything like that. It was just like, because um, it was mostly me. Especially mm-hmm. in maths, right from the start, I wasn't, I was just kind of, um, I remember speaking to the teacher in my first day there, um, and him, because I was in the top set there, and I remember in the first class, in year 10, so this is the first year of GCSEs, um, in first class, and maths class in the top set, um, people thought that um, something being squared meant that it was times by two. And I kind of knew, wow, I'm quite ahead of these people. Um, so school couldn't reach you academically in some no. ways. But we had that problem like like in year six, didn't we, as well? Yeah. But um, yeah, so I remember the first day in maths class, the teacher kind of took me to um, the corner and like just like tested me on a few things. And after that, he just got me to sit at the back of the classroom and teach myself. He was lovely, wasn't he? Oh, he was he? lovely, yeah. And I was very happy with that. Yeah. And eventually I stopped being in the classroom and just taught myself in the library or at home. So where did you, in, in the school, where, could, where did you go to feel happy and safe? You've talked about feeling so isolated. Where, was there a safe space for you in, in school? Not really. What about breaks and lunch times? What did you do in breaks and lunch times? Most breaks and lunch times I locked myself in a toilet cubicle. And what did you, just in order to be on your own, in order to... Yeah. To not have to deal with people. Yeah, in order to not be looked at. So what were some of the things that made school hardest at that time then? Until like recently, I've been very anxious around crowds. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was one thing which wasn't... It was also... It was a lot more, like, loud and chaotic as a school than the school in Thailand had been. In Thailand, people were quite, on the whole, were quite calm and just, like, reserved. Not reserved, but, like, just, um, yeah, were just quite calm and, like, well-behaved and all that. And then in school in Jordan, it wasn't like that. Everyone was, like, rushing around, being loud, shouting. Um, That stressed me out. Um, What about some of the challenges of being trans? in that school I mean often trans kids might struggle with uh, sport and PE for example or they might struggle with uniform they might struggle with uh, single sex groupings or I didn't um, I didn't struggle with the uniform because like I said yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't like having to use the girls toilets but I also know I wouldn't have been like safe using the boys toilets so um, and I wouldn't have been allowed to either but I didn't like using the girls toilets especially because it kind of I had this struggle in um, in Jordan because, like, apart from a couple close friends, people didn't know I was trans. And in, like, women's toilets and changing rooms, like, like girls who wear hijabs will, like, take them off, Mm -hmm. obviously, because, like, if they need to change or whatever. But I felt, like, awkward because I knew I was a guy, but I didn't have an option of not using the girls' changing rooms or toilets, so it felt weird. You know, like that I don't know. That felt weird to me. So you worried that unintentionally, without any control, yeah, you were what invading their spaces and their privacy. Yeah, um, but also, like, 
like sports like PE was difficult because I was binding especially I was binding unsafely at first and that's hard anyway but if you're like trying to run around and move around then it's really hard and I, I would always wear my hood my like school hoodie over my PE uniform because sometimes I was like I literally I can't bind and do this sport which we have to do so I wouldn't bind but I would wear like a very baggy hoodie over it which in the Middle East in summer mm. <laughs> is not a nice thing to be doing um yeah I've in most of the time in PE it was not good but when um I think you it was you or someone else like changed the structure of it and then you got to like choose what you did for PE and then I chose boxing and that was quite therapeutic for me. We had quite an enlightened PE department, actually. Yeah. Um, and they, they were trying really hard to make it more bespoke. Yeah. And uh, less gendered, I mm. think. Yeah. Um, I really I really enjoyed doing boxing for that. And I remember, because there was also something, I can't remember what you called it, but you set up this thing where I was like, uh, just like a non-academic activity for like one period a week or something. And I chose boxing was an option for that as well. So I chose it for that as well. So I had, um, so there was this one day where I had two hours of boxing in a row. And although it was enjoyable, it was not manageable, like with binding and with a very energetic aerobic sport. Um, and with not really eating either. And I often felt like I was going to faint after it. Um, so it was kind of a mixed blessing because I think it was good for me mentally, but it, I wasn't um, looking after my body enough to um, for it to actually be safe. I remember some other things changed in your schooling. So in, in Thailand, you were um, in two productions. Mm. So when you're putting yourself out there on the stage... Um, despite the fact that you were hiding this um, dissonance uh, between your gender identity and how you were expected to express, you're still out there in 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 two productions. Um, but then, as soon as you got to, um, to to Jordan, that that just stopped, didn't it? Yeah. Well, were there other things that were much harder um, in Jordan in terms well, of, like, of engaging with? Um, well, like speaking of that, it's more. I feel like, I don't know about, I can't speak for all trans people, but I know for me, like the period of time when I knew I was trans, but I wasn't ready to tell people yet. And I wasn't ready to start presenting how I wanted to present yet. That period of time and the period of time from when I started like passing and getting gendered correctly, um, I was, I'm confident and I was more confident before mm. I came out. It's the in-between bit, isn't it's it? It's the in-between bit where I wasn't confident because I was trying to um to look like how I wanted to look but not people around me weren't seeing that or weren't like acknowledging it and um also because with um with productions with drama and acting all that there's obviously a lot of speech Mm. and um I did have like discomforts about this when we were in Thailand but I just kind of like a lot of things just pushed it to the back of my head and thought okay I'll deal with this later right. um, but yeah in Jordan after I'd started presenting um, masculinely and like come out to you lot and some other friends um, voice dysphoria became a massive thing 
Okay, tell me more about that. So, um, you get, I think it's a lot of thing which like cis people don't really think about, you know, when you think of, when they do think of dysphoria, they think, oh, it's to do with like your chest and your genitals and that's it. But there's dysphoria about all sorts of things. You know, there's, um, like dysphoria about the shape of your like hips or like about your shoulders or about the shape of your face. Like trans women dysphoria about facial hair, trans men dysphoria about lack of facial hair possibly. And voice dysphoria is a big thing for all trans people, to be honest, unless they're comfortable with their own voice. Um, and um, like for, for trans women, um, hormones don't change your voice. So you have to like do voice vocal training to kind of make your voice sound higher and more feminine. So in theory, a trans woman can start doing vocal training and trying to sound make her voice sound higher as soon as she is like come out and wants to start presenting family. But for trans men, you can't make your voice sound deeper without it damaging your voice and just really hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to wait until you're on hormones and they'll change it naturally. <laughs> so so I, you knew whilst, as long as we were out there that it was going to be very difficult to yeah. um, get hold of hormones yeah. and have them safely administered. So you were stuck, not just with a body that you didn't recognise as you, yeah. but with a voice that you didn't recognise as you yeah, as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I couldn't... Um, you know, I could just about manage just in conversation, but I found like public speaking hard as well. Like de- we did debating and stuff. Mm. I found that difficult. As a trans guy, not comfortable with my voice and having a lot of dysphoria, just hearing your voice just in conversation is one thing, but then hearing it amplified by a microphone is a whole different thing. So I couldn't do that on stage, public speaking in a microphone. I couldn't do acting, you know, with a microphone or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I, but I did get involved in productions. I did it with like on the side of, stage directing and like assistant director that kind of thing so you still did drama gcc I still did drama well, gcc yeah. i really struggled with the like performance level of that with microphones again so what what could the school have done to make you feel safer and more comfortable um or was it hard because we had advised you not to uh, come out as trans with them. It was hard because you had advised me not to come out as trans with them. But it was also hard, like, looking back, I don't think the school could have done much which would actually have made a difference to me without having complaints from loads of parents and, like, struggles like that, you know, because of where the school was. So the school is almost would have had to choose between keeping you safe... Or avoiding difficult parental conversations? Yeah, pretty much. And the thing is, if you're a school in a country where it is controversial and difficult to be, like, in, to embrace, like, the trans or just LGBTQ plus community, and you've got, like, one trans student who's out, um, and it's a decision between supporting them at all costs and making sure they have everything they need to feel safe and looked after, or possibly having loads of parents take their kids out of the school and all that it's a difficult decision to make what about the changes that a school can administer that are more invisible almost that are just changes that they're making for the whole school community that also they know are going to benefit the the trans or non-binary or gender questioning kid could you give me some examples well for instance making sure that there were non-gendered bathrooms 
making sure that a uniform was not gendered. I mean, already in your school it wasn't yeah. gendered, but things like that, making sure that you don't, that you avoid dividing kids into boys groups and girls groups. You don't have a head boy and a head girl, uh, things like that. I think those things would have helped, yeah. Personally, for me, and I think it was also just because of all the other issues that I was dealing with at the time, the only thing that would have helped was like properly educating all the students and teachers on on the trans community and like how to respect them and be kind and accepting. Right. And that's obviously a lot more complicated thing. So what happened when school became increasingly impossible then? It was quite a... I mean, I did end up dropping out in the end, but it was quite a gradual process, wasn't it? Because mm. um, it started with, like, from the start of my time in Jordan, um, I was self-teaching my maths GCSE. And I did that in um, the January... No, in the, I did that in the summer after my first year there, so I did it in year 10. Um, and I was also, from quite early on, self-teaching physics. Mm-hmm. And I think that was because... Um, because I'd done a year 10 in Thailand as well because I started secondary school with year 8 but we made the decision for me not to go into year 11 because some of the GCSEs were different exam boards and I wouldn't have been able to do all the same ones if I'd gone into year 11 I think that's a tough decision for any international school families yeah so the wrong decision do you think? I, th- I don't knowing what the year above was like no I don't think it was the wrong decision <laughs> okay. um, but um yeah so I from the beginning of my year 10 in Jordan I was self-teaching my maths thing I was also self-teaching physics I can't remember if it was from the start or it was from early on I think it was a gradual process wasn't it you started to and as when we allowed you to not go in for this period then it became a little bit longer and we allowed that then it became a bit longer and almost without us all realizing it the balance had tipped the other way so you were at home more than you were at School. And eventually when it came, because I did my, I self-taught my whole further maths course and I did my further maths and all three science GCSEs in the January of year 11. So by that point it was then really hard to... Yeah, by that point I only had, well, I only had English and drama left and history, yeah. English drama and history left. So I was just going in like once or twice a week. And the rest of the time you were... Just in my room. Yeah. Yeah. And when we, we, we gave you... Uh, trans flag and rainbow flag curtains but yeah. um, that, that didn't stop it being something of a, a cocoon or a prison a uh, mixture of both to be honest yeah it's just kind of a self-destructed thing you know like I didn't I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have felt safe going out lots mm. but I wasn't safe just isolating myself either <laughs> so and at that point, though, so a lot of that was to do with curriculum alignment, and you'd covered some things but hadn't covered others, and it didn't fit with what your peers had or hadn't done. Yeah. But you get to the end of year 11, you could then have said, right, now there is alignment because I'm starting my A-level course at the same, same time as everyone else, um, but you didn't feel able to just uh, become a full student again and, no. and do your A-levels. No, not in that school, not in that class, and not in general by that point, because I'd gotten so... Because isolation had kind of become a comfort. Even though it wasn't good for me, it had become a comfort, because it was what I knew. (laughs) 
there's a good three years there that were kind of lost in many ways. You didn't have the opportunities for for growth, for for social development, for social interaction, for seeing yourself succeed and enjoying success. So you were, it was lost years in many ways. What do you think the effect of those lost years were on your education, on your development, and on your future? Um, development wise, it's kind of a mixed thing because okay. I I do feel like I'm more mature than most people my age yeah I would agree with that but also after those three years well basically the first year because I was going to school after the two years of basically no almost no socialization then moving back to the UK afterwards I found it incredibly difficult to put myself out there and like talk to people and I was really scared of talking to anyone withdrawal had become your norm exactly yeah um I'm past that now but yeah it took a while you don't shut up now yeah but um then with like education and my future it was difficult because because of how like stupid the education system is globally to be honest um and like how you need all these like requirements and like qualifications to get to the next stage and you need that next stage to like get a job you want and all that kind of stuff it's been difficult because it's really hard to get into like any kind of higher education without a levels or some equivalent um and it's frustrating to me a lot of the time because i know that like academically um, and skills wise I would have been completely capable of getting high grades at three or four A levels but just because of the situation I was in and like which was beyond my control I, w- I wasn't in the place for that um, and you're um, an artist now aren't yeah. you and therefore I, I suppose a part of you it's thinks- pointless yeah <laughs> doing yeah because I was my plan was to like self teach and then just go to like um, an exam centre and sit enough A-levels to get into uni when I'm back here to go do art at uni but it seemed I, I gave up on that plan just because it seemed so stupid to have to go because I would have chosen like maths and further maths and stuff because that's what I find the easiest to like self-teach but it felt so stupid having to like like making myself study and do exams for two A-levels purely for the purpose of going to do a degree in the subject which was completely the opposite of those A-levels. Does that make you angry about those those two or three years or regret me... those two or three years? No, or... I wouldn't have managed them, but it makes me angry at the education system. Was there any good that came out of it? I found art. Okay. And maybe that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had that, all that space to fill, do you think? I don't think it would have because... Um, my plan at that point was, um, I mean, I'd had lots of different plans over the years of what I wanted to do in my future. But at that point, like GCSE years, my plan was I wanted to go on to do like maths C subjects at A-levels and then go and study maths at like UCL or Imperial or something in London. Um, I don't know what I wanted to do with that maths degree. I just knew that I loved maths. And I think if I'd been in a good enough place to actually do the A-levels then that's what I would have ended up doing. And then I would have, you know, had a maths degree and nothing that I wanted to do with it. <laughs> so I guess we're all a product of our story in that sense. Mm. And I suppose to put a positive spin on it, is there a space for regret then? If, you, if who you are now is in part because of what you experienced in those lost years, do you regret? I don't really know. Um 
yeah, I don't think I do. Because the thing is, I, after I kind of made the dis, like after my GCSEs was pretty much when I started exploring art stuff. And since then, I was just doing that all the time, mm. you know? And if I hadn't, if I, if my time had been like occupied with other stuff and I was just kind of putting art to the side when I first discovered I liked it, I don't think I would have discovered quite how much I liked it. I, would have, I wouldn't have gotten as good. So firstly, through the lens of the trans experience, what do you think from your point of view as a young trans male who's recently been through schools in a number of different countries, what do you think are some of the quick wins, some of the easy things that schools could or at least should do to render trans and non-binary and gender questioning kids safe and happy and able to thrive? I think teachers specifically need to be very conscious about putting emphasis on gendered things in a classroom. You think that happens a lot? I think it happens a lot, yeah. When you're studying stuff um, with like subject matters, when you're like in English, if you're like reading a book or studying a book or something like that, just like splitting people into groups, um, making just comments, stuff like that. Um, they need to be very conscious about what they're saying that's to do with gender. Um, I don't know how widespread this is, but I met someone recently who's a teacher and they um, told me that there was someone in one of their classes who came to them and said that they um, were like thinking about gender stuff and was a bit confused about their gender and wanted to go by a different name in the classroom. And that teacher got told off by the senior leadership team for calling this student by a name which wasn't on the school record. And they said, you can't do that. Um, you in order to do that we have to inform this kid's parents but the kids wasn't out to their parents um i don't know if that is how the rules in every school but if it is then that's shit <laughs> you know that kind of stuff should change you know if a kid says to a teacher oh i'd prefer it if you call me by this name the teacher should just be able to say yeah of course you know so using the name that the kid wants to be called yeah and using the pronouns that the student yeah. wants, and also to asking be used. them, asking them, is this set of name and pronouns safe to use in like writing, like in your report card or letters to home or something like that, and just accept like acknowledging and accepting whatever the, this kid tells you. You know, so it's not that complicated, it really, really, is isn't. it? No. Uh, and what about the the curriculum? How how visible was? was trans identity and, and the trans experience and the trans community. How visible was that when you were growing up in school in terms of, you know, figures from history or in terms of books that you read or... Not at all. No, not at all. Um, and I think that's partly because trans people have been erased a lot throughout history, as is just the LGBT community in general. Um, but also just like... Like in sex education I actually never had any sex education classes because I faked sick whenever we were going to have them because I didn't want to go to Brilliant. them <laughs> but um, in, from what I've heard about them in sex education classes they're not only not inclusive of like gay people um, but they're not inclusive at all of like trans people and they obviously use a lot of gendered language and say, okay, this is the female body, this is the female anatomy, this is the male body, this is the male anatomy. Um, and that just isn't correct. 
and it's like as well as trans people like you don't when you're learning about even if even like in biology for instance when you're not you don't really need to learn about gender because that isn't that's more to do with the mind um mm. when you're just learning about sex like intersex people get erased all the time with that kind of discussion don't they mm-hmm. um because like for a long time i thought intersex people it was just like oh you have both sets of genitals because i had no idea because you don't get taught about that in mm-hmm. like school but it's not it's like it could be all combinations of things you could have like um i'm doing quotation marks here male genitalia mm-hmm. but you could have a womb so if the curriculum taught uh, about uh, the reality of sex and gender, then uh, children wouldn't grow up with so many misconceptions and so much ignorance yeah. and and then so much prejudice, yeah. Um, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that, um, that trans identities and just gender identity in general it's really important that it's included in the school curriculum wherever it's included, you know, I don't really care which subject, but, um, um, yeah. And just like, I think more so now sex education has developed enough to slightly include gay people, you know, it isn't just about like, protecting yourself from getting pregnant now you know it is about STIs as well and that affects everyone and all that but it's not at all like you don't learn about gender you don't learn about um intersex people you don't learn about transitions you know um because even there's like even loads of cis people who they do they're like they're not transphobic they know that trans people exist they call them by the correct names and pronouns and all that that's the level of understanding they have but they have no idea how transitioning works, mm-hmm. you know? Um, a lot of them, which I find funny, a lot of them, I've realised, think that when you, like, have... Like, because I had surgery recently, mm-hmm. and I've been asked a lot, like, oh, so have you got it all done then? I think they think that you kind of go in and they do all the operations on you to make you, like, this finished product of male, mm-hmm. and then you're done, you're finished. That's where the idea of Freddie McConnell, the the journalist... Um, uh, who you know he's he's proud of his um, of being a man, but um, he didn't have um, a hysterectomy, mm-hmm. and comes on and off different hormones in order to be able to conceive and bear a child. Yeah. That messes with the mind of people who have been brought up with a an enforced binary. Yeah, um, I was working with a a school uh, and their earliest teachers recently, where the earliest teachers were reflecting on how often they say at the start of a day right come on boys and girls line up boys and girls and um into what clothes the kids dress up in um yeah. and 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 everything is enforcing that binary the whole time was it, do you think that can be different i think so i don't think it's easy because if people if like people have been brought up with very gendered things then just without thinking they'll like say oh boys and girls whatever like that but and it will take time for each person to kind of try and change the way they use language with gender but if people try it isn't too difficult you know you eventually get into the habit of not saying those things have you had any queer teachers over the years i've had gay teachers never had a trans one not to my knowledge anyway mm-hmm. um and was that helpful did that matter to see that visibility i think so because i had a gay teacher in thailand who would like lend me gay plays um, and that was nice, you know, feeling seen. 
Mm. And what about pronouns? Do, um, do you I, think teachers should be sharing their pronouns? Do you think they should be asking kids pronouns? Or do you think that that complicates things? I think... Not less, I think a teacher, if they stood up in front of their class when they introduced themselves and said, I'm so-and-so, my pronouns are he, him, she, her, they, them, whatever, um, that could, like, be taken badly by some people. But like, but that's just, going back to your fear earlier. It doesn't yeah. make it wrong. No, I know. But I think it's like individual teachers, I don't think, can make the decision to start doing that because they might get told off by their bosses. So it has to be institutional. It has to be institutional, yeah. But we're talking here about the perfect school. In the yeah. perfect school... In the perfect school, teachers, yeah, would introduce themselves with their name and pronouns. Because I just think everyone should start doing that if they meet someone new. Um, and at the start of a year, when you first start teaching yeah, a class? Introduce yourself with your name and pronouns. And ask the kids what they want to be that, called? I, okay, that is a more complicated thing. Because you might have some kids who are questioning it mm. and they don't really want to say in front of the whole class all oh, these are my pronouns um they also might not want to say what their pronouns are at all because they might not be sure but you could just put like you could give out like a like i saw um an example of this some um, a teacher had like printed out little just little like form thingies for each of their students to fill out saying like what's your name what would you like me to call you um what are your pronouns um and are these pronouns safe to use in front of other people or something like that, you know? Um, or like safe to use with your parents, for instance, you know, things like that. That is a nice, that is a more discreet and like nicer way of doing it. I like that idea. And that isn't something that's difficult to do. <laughs> is there anything else you can think of that would make schools um, more inclusive? For... I mean, there is the obvious gender neutral toilets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and changing rooms. And changing rooms and, um, and uniforms. Although to Speaking of changing rooms, in most schools I've been to, the changing rooms they are there aren't cubicles. You're just expected to like strip and change. Which is a bit bizarre. It's really weird. And then the teachers will just come in and tell you, "Oh, you've got this long left to change all that." Um, It's just really weird. I think in general, you know, not this isn't even to do with gender now. It's just like students' um, privacy around their bodies and themselves Mm. should just be respected. And so all change rooms should have cubicles, in which case, yeah, gender change rooms are very easy to implement. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, gender neutral toilets and change rooms, gender neutral uniforms, even if not gender neutral uniforms, just complete choice about what uniform you wear, you know, whatever your gender is. If you're a boy and you want to wear a skirt, you can wear a skirt if that's part of the uniform, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But a number of times in our conversations here, you're you're talking about, yes, but that might upset the parents. Yes, that might cause problems. Yeah, but that might actually cause more harm than it does good. You're, that's your language a lot of the time. And I'm wondering, how should schools then proceed? Because if the choice is between um, keeping every child safe or not upsetting the apple cart, you know, not causing wider problems, what, what should a school do? It's complicated because... It's not really change. The big changes aren't changes that just one teacher can make in their classroom, mm-hmm. and in a lot of cases, they're not even changes that one school can make for their school. You know, especially if it's a state school, because um, like with in this country in the UK, like the government passed a thing fairly recently within the past year. Um, which kind of reads like a very subtle trans-related section twenty-eight. You know. Which makes um, which makes making trans inclusive massive changes within a school 
potentially more difficult. And political decision. Political, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll come on to that um, a bit later. Lots of people listening to this podcast will be international educators. Yeah. They'll be in a, in a school where perhaps, considering where the greatest number of international schools is, in a country which is at best not very tolerant of and at yeah. worst completely prohibitive of um, any non-binary gender identity. Yeah. So they'll be in schools where they have to make a decision. How far do we go? Should we be being pragmatic and compromising on the safety um, and well-being and belonging of our trans and non-binary and gender questioning kids in order to keep everyone on side or should it be almost a sine qua non uh, a non-negotiable every child in our school must feel safe whoever they are they must belong they must uh, have uh, the right and equitable access to positive well-being and if that means we've got to take on parts of the the community or the local government or the central government then so be it you know what, what, what advice would you give in an ideal world then that second thing sounds great but speaking as someone who's only 20 and, you know, has never worked in a school, I can't really, I don't know what advice I'd give to that kind of big, big scale, large scale thing to do with a school and battling the country and institution that it's in. Um, I do know that, for instance, when we were in Thailand, um, like there was another school in the same city who had a gay straight alliance and like they had a stool and they had a like like an educational day during pride month and all that about gender stuff and all that that would never have happened at the school we were at in thailand um so i don't think it is always totally to do with the country it is sometimes just you know a group of people in the school choosing okay we're going to do this and then doing it you know (laughs) 